Welcome to the Global Tech Leaders Podcast, where we help business leaders and individual contributors with actionable insights to hit their number and figure out the nuances of truly operating a business globally today, squeezing the essence of the lessons learned from the planet's top tech leaders. This is your guide to joining the fast track to global market scaling. Today, we are joined by Jimmy Zolotarev, who is the CEO and, uh, of Baltic Tech Ventures, who are doing some incredible um, innovative uh, approaches to uh, investment in this space uh, in the Baltic region. So um, he's had a, an illustrious career um, at a very uh, much at a sea level, and I'm very keen to understand his motivations, what brought him to where he is, what's different about private equity and venture capital, what's specific about it in the Baltic region. Um, so welcome to today's show, uh, Gene. Uh, thank you, Ross. Happy to be here. Great. Well, let's get stuck in straight away. And um, tell us about you personally in your own career, and um, you know, kind of what's brought you to where you are, and why you're so passionate about what you're doing right now. If you could share. Um, sure. Well, my career wasn't exactly a straight line, and um, I, I'm, I'm American from New York. That's where I grew up, and um, I, I was very much interested in technology, early programming computers when they were just starting to come out there like in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, and basically what I, I just wanted to be a scientist and uh, an engineer and a physicist or something like that. And that's what I've studied at the university. I went to Columbia, I've studied engineering and applied physics and uh, took a lot of course and basically had a minor in astrophysics <laughs> at the end of the day. Um, wow. as, uh, as I've studied more and more, I've realized that I would was also interested in business and uh, and finance and a lot of other things. So after graduation, I worked for a consulting firm and that gave me a lot of different exposures to you know, various different industries. And I, I really felt that that finance and investment banking was really uh, something that um, was both very interesting and very well paid, <laughs> which is, uh, was a, a very important criteria for a young man in New York. Um, and that's what eventually I kind of fell into. Um, uh, so I, I've worked for over 20 years, uh, you know, in senior management positions in commercial banks and investment banks. And I've built up asset management companies and brokerage firms and things of that nature, um, mostly uh, out of Central and Eastern Europe and, and Russia and CIS because I, I, I speak fluent Russian and that proved to be very helpful. Sure. Um, and, uh, um, but, you know, my love for technology was always there. Um, so when I left the corporate world about 15 years ago, I, I started to uh, co-invest with a lot of my friends out of like US, Israel, uh, UK, um, and uh, learned a lot about this industry. And, uh, and when um, uh, the time was right, a couple of years ago, I decided that, you know, why don't I just do this myself? Um, I was very familiar with the Baltics. Um, it's a great region. And what's been happening over the last, whatever, decade, but more importantly, over the last, say, three or four years, uh, Baltics have really um, became kind of a, a venture capital startup like hub almost like like hotspot. Mm -hmm. I mean, the whole industry has been taking off, but in, in Baltics, it got a lot of government support. 
so I found myself, you know, in kind of the right place at the right time again. And, uh, and I thought like that, this is just a great place to build um, a venture capital business and accelerator and help uh, identify and grow promising scalable companies. And that's kind of in a nutshell of, you know, why I'm doing what I'm doing. So I'm, I am super passionate about, you know, the, the Baltics as a startup ecosystem. I think it's great. It's the best value for money uh, anywhere in Europe, if not the world. Um, it's got a fantastic concentration of talent, uh, ambition, and increasingly um, funding. So um, kind of a, a, a trifecta of those, uh, of those um, kind of powerful vectors and forces uh, it's what's driving the development. So I think there's a couple of points you've touched on there that are very relevant um, to some of the things that I've seen as criteria for, for success. Um, you mentioned that you come from an engineering background, which you were very interested in business. So I'm, I'm a computer scientist myself by training. And then I rounded that off with a postgraduate master's in international business and marketing. And um, I think that kind of approach to a startup is key because engineers are, are problem solvers by design. They love problems. They, 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 they solve problems to create more problems is the way I kind of think about it. And then you have a commercial lean to it as well that you can kind of engineer into that as it were, which will allow you to um, you know, reach the reality and get feedback from the market as to what, um, you know, your product could, can do. And I think there's also a, a, a secondary uh, platform layer around success in the environment that you're a part of. So I suppose having grown up in Ireland myself, um, I've seen that too. You know, we had a situation in the 1980s where we had a highly educated workforce, uh, but we would no jobs for them. They'd nowhere to go to exercise this talent. And I think that um, that was very detrimental. We saw a massive drain, uh, brain drain, we called it, uh, in the 80s in particular and into the 90s until things shifted, where the government created very business-friendly policies and we had all this inward investment and we had this boom right in the 90s. And I think you know, that's starting to happen in, in the, in the um, Baltic region that you mentioned there. And I'm keen to dive right into that. So, you know, I, I can tell you from my own perspective what that's looked like in Ireland, and we've talked about it on, on shows before, but maybe let's just hone in on the Baltic region for a minute, if we could, and, and just tell us what has changed, what's been so dramatic that have led to companies uh, popping up all over the place. You mentioned about investment, but investment only comes when you have the right criteria to meet that investment. That's my belief. So maybe just tell us what has changed, you know, geopolitically in that region over the last, say, decade for you. I mean, like, like I said, this um, this evolution of uh, the ecosystem, let's call it the ecosystem of development, had uh, obviously there are many moving parts, but some of it was that um, you, you had a lot of um, uh, sort of highly, you know, ambitious, knowledgeable people working in, you know, various industries, um, which were, you know, the priorities have been shifting. You know, historically, the Baltic countries were very big in transit and trade with Russia and the CIS. So mm -hmm. you had a lot of people dealing with, with that. Uh, a lot of people were employed in financial services that was financing that trade. Um, with uh, the, with political relations, geopolitical relations, becoming a little bit more icy uh, and 
the Baltics being kind of solidly in the EU and NATO corner, yeah. um, I mean, naturally it created a vacuum where, you know, talented, ambitious, you know, enterprising people had to go. And uh, technology was one of them. And it proved to be that, that not, you know, government also recognized that the sector really need, needed support. So there are like lots of, you know, very attractive support packages from, from the state in all three countries. Um, and some of it, I think, was just luck. Uh, uh, you know, first it was Estonia that kind of put the Baltics on the, on, the, on the map for technology startups with Skype and, you know, a bunch of other, you know, success stories. And, um, and that led to uh, just well, like one thing leading another that, you know, all of a sudden the world has heard of these like tiny little countries that were punching above their weight. And, um, and, you know, that led to more interest and that led to more people taking a chance on funding them and setting up shop. Um, so I think it just naturally kind of developed as a, as a result of that. So, you know, luck did play a role in it. So I think if there was like no Skype, for example, um, I think that development may have taken a few, few more years. Uh, it probably would have happened anyway, but you know, but Skype was the one that really put like the Baltics on the map. Right, you've got pipe drive there as well, from what I understand. Yeah, but that came much later. That that came much later. This Skype was really, it kind of like got that reputation of, you know, what are these like, what are these Baltic countries up to? What are they doing? I mean, sure, sure. No, I, I suppose if you build it, they will come um, like the Field of Dreams movie, right? And I suppose from an Irish perspective, that would have been Intel. That would have been Pfizer as well before that again. Um, and then when Microsoft came in the 90s and then Google came and then Sheryl Sandberg moved from Google to Facebook, Facebook came and, you know, then then it becomes a kind of a domino effect. Right. Um, where do you I think what's different about the Baltics is, is that you guys have innovation that we have innovation here, but it's happening within the ecosystem of the companies that are already here. Right. So it's the big noises that are here, whereas you have this kind of innovation hub. Maybe just talk to us about, you know, what sort of um, talent do you have? I mean, what are the universities turning out in terms of like developers and, and what do some of those, um, and I'm very keen to get to Baltic Tech Ventures as well in, in terms of accelerators and so on as well, but what does the kind of talent landscape look like? Um, I think the, uh, to be objective, you know, I don't think this is like the, the, the talent hub of the world or anything. Uh, you know, there are, you know, much more prominent universities and tech hubs, you know, elsewhere. Um, but I, I think there are some, there is a historical perspective, like in the Baltics during the Soviet time was where it was the like leading position, especially Latvia for electronics and for pharmaceuticals. So uh, that kind of knowledge base and that kind of legacy uh, really helped for, you know, a lot of the earlier startups. Um, but I, I think it's just an, like an average, like a combination of different forces. I think it was, gee, uh, it, it was a fairly good concentration of talent. And, and let's not forget, inexpensive. Um, it's like I mentioned the words like value for money. You get a lot more value for money in the Baltics. Salaries are much, much, it's like a fraction of what they are in Western Europe. Um, that means that runways are longer, companies have uh, more breathing room to succeed. Um, it's easier maybe to get funding because you're not moving like millions or billions around. I mean, we're talking about our average fundraise for our, our portfolio companies 
is like 300,000 or 500,000 like that. That's, that's like seed level fundraise. I mean, sure. That's like 10 times less than something similar w- would take place in the UK or Switzerland, whatever, you know, yep. Israel. Um, so, yeah. So you, like I said, you know, you, yeah. And because of that, I think there's an excellent risk reward. You've got the same scalable tech, um, you know, similar principles of graduating through accelerators and, you know, having it vetted and tested. Um, and, uh, but we're talking about, we're talking about like an average valuation of one to 3 million for a post revenue company. That's what we're in that, like, that's what's in our portfolio. Um, that's a fraction of what it would be in, in kind of a developed company. These are post revenue companies, right? Um, you wouldn't be anywhere near that, you know, if it was anywhere else in the U.S. or or, or Western Europe. Okay. So, like, um, so it's not like some you know special secret sauce. Uh, it's a combination of factors that's leading for you know just good value. Okay, and how do they find internationalizing from there? I mean, what's the kind of methodology to get into North America? How, how does that kind of happen um, organically when it starts out uh, in the Baltics? Well, it's you know once you know once the company reaches that scale, it's you know it's every man for himself. It, it it's a hustle. Okay, and um, you know some succeed, others don't. It's there's no methodology methodology is you know you work as hard as you can and you you hope for the best yes indeed. yeah very very true um well look tell us about baltic tech ventures what you guys are doing why you're different um and what's so exciting about the projects you're involved in if you could share well in a nutshell like once again i don't think we have like a monopoly on exciting projects uh we have uh, uh and i don't think we're any better at picking you know winners than, than anybody else What's different about BTB is that we have a fundamentally different business model and a fundamentally different way how we align ourselves with investors. Um, because we are a publicly listed company and we're not a fund. Um, and I think that's a very important distinction. Mm. A fund, a typical VC fund, they take investors' money, they invest them in you know, startups uh, and they charge a management fee and a success fee. Um, we uh, are not collecting investors' money. Uh, investors can, uh, they can participate in one of two ways. They can either buy our shares or participate in like secondary public offering. We, we've just recently closed one, very successful. We had investors out of US, UK, um, Israel, Monaco, um, Latvia, mm-hmm. Lithuania, Estonia, obviously. And um, uh, yeah, I think that's it. And uh, Italy, yeah. So, uh, so that's one way to kind of get involved if you don't want to actually get involved in any particular company or they can co-invest with us on any one of our investment projects. We don't charge any fees for that and they get to invest on the same terms as we do. So that's the only, that the, the two ways investors get involved. That's very different from a typical VC fund that very jealously guard uh, access to, to their investments. Uh, so, for us, uh, because anybody can buy our shares, there is no minimum, uh, no uh, lockup, and no fees. You become a shareholder like anybody else, and uh, as a shareholder, you have uh, full economic benefit of the underlying portfolio. Now, uh, we get paid, like the operations are being paid for by the startups themselves, uh, either in cash or in equity, 
as we help them reach different KPIs. So we're not all about the investment, we're about business development. So it's kind of a hybrid business model where we, we make certain small minority investments to get in, and then we help the company develop. And for that, we get once we reach certain milestones and KPIs, uh, we get equity. And uh, all of that accumulates to a minority stake. Still, we don't want anything more than 10%. And, um, uh, and we will aim to get out of our positions within two or three years at round B or C. Okay. So uh, because of that, that, that leads us to recycle capital every two to three years. Um, we're looking also not for uh, unicorns. I mean, we're not looking for like some mega disruptors. We are, we're very happy to develop companies that are, well, that will become strong regional leaders. And, you know, just to get in at the valuation, I've already mentioned our target valuation is anywhere from one to three million. Uh, and we will aim to exit at valuation of say eight to 12 million. So these are not, uh, th this is still, you know, five X or on the average, but it's not, uh, uh, like billions and billions where, you know, you sit for a long time and you wait for a company to possibly become a unicorn. That's not what we do. What it leads is, but the degree of certainty of happening, um, uh, something that we, that an event happening in, in our case is extremely high because it's much easier to move the valuation needle from one to 10 than from 10 to hundred, you know, broadly speaking. Sure. And that's, that's what we do. That's the difference. The difference where publicly listed, uh, we're the only uh, company like that in Central and Eastern Europe and the Nordics. There is one other company who does similar things uh, to what we're doing in listed in London on AIM, um, but there's nobody else. So that kind of leaves us a, a bit unique. And I think that's very exciting because you know, more and more people want to get into VC. And historically, it's been very prohibitive. Um, and um, we are the ones who are offering a, an alternative solution. I, I think that's there's no question that's unique. You know, I I, um, I, I absolutely recognize that. I'm, I'm curious to know, like, how does that shift the conversation when either you approach a potential investment or they approach you? What, what does that change in the conversation uh, with those uh, companies that could be in your portfolio? Well, yeah, generally speaking, it's a positive. Uh, those who can grasp the concept and not everyone can because they tend to be, you know, younger people with less financial uh, experience and or market experience. Um, but the vast majority understand the benefits of that. And I think they understand that what we're offering is a much broader footprint because we're a public, a lot more people will know about them than otherwise would uh, have learned about that company. Uh, also, you know, when, once we onboard that, once we onboard the company, it automatically they get plugged into our social media marketing platform. So we make sure that we do all these investor pitches, and the companies can pitch through our platform, and that's like, you know, thousands and thousands of, um, of potential investors. So, and because we don't charge any fees for co-investing, uh, that creates a very kind of a powerful financial incentive for everyone to be involved. Like we, we don't charge uh, any investors who want to co-invest with us in a specific company. They, they do it in exactly the same terms. Got it, okay. And I suppose like when you are um, investigating a, a potential investment, like 
what is it you're looking for? I know, I know you talked about valuations of one to three million with a 10% or lower stake. Um, they're the financials, but what do you look for in a good founder, co-founder? Um, you know, talk to me about some of their values, some of their drive. What are kind of check boxes for success or red flags for that matter? Well, uh, it's like, once again, you know, I don't think we're any different. Uh, the only difference is personal experience. You know, as uh, I've had 20 plus years of investment banking, that's hundreds and hundreds of deals yeah. um, of all kinds, you know, M&A, ECM, DCM, whatever, you know, all kinds of, uh, all, all, all kinds of deals. Uh, so when you do, you know, enough of it, it, you know, you develop certain insights into the personal qualities of a person who, you know, who may or may not be behind the deal to help it succeed. And I would say, at, maybe at the risk of sounding too categorical, um, over the course of that, you know, dec several decades of experience, I'd say most of the founders or people at the helm of companies, they tend to fall into one of two categories. Those who get things done and those who try to get things done. Um, and we go for the, for the former. I mean, people who get things done. You know, they don't come up with excuses. Uh, they don't blame failures on the environment or on circumstance. They take full accountability for their wins and for their losses. And that's the kind of personality I think it takes to make it succeed. And um, so if, we, if I see that, that that's a, like a huge, like big fat check, you know, checkbox. Okay, and and what do you think um, is is it yeah is there is there a personality trait that you you see let people down like in terms of those people who get them done and don't get them done, um, how do you discern you know I, I suppose you're probably listening for key key cues in the conversation, um, maybe if you could share some of your success stories about somebody that you you spoke with that just thought this guy's a rock star from day one. Well, I mean, okay, a lot of them are intelligent. Obviously, you have to be intelligent and they have to be driven and passionate. I mean, these are the obvious things that everyone will tell you. Um, and there's no, I mean, I'm not a, like a trained psychologist or anything, uh, nor am I a, an NLP expert. Um, a lot of it is just talking, uh, talking about, you know, how they see the future, or what do they want to do with their, you know, with this investment, what do they want to do next? And um, that, kind of gives you an idea for, you know, who they really are and whether or not, you know, how committed they are to a particular venture. Um, commitment is, um, you know, is a huge thing. Um, and um, like I said, it's not, it, a lot of it is just intangibles. I, I wish I could share them or right. put them in a book or something. A lot of it is just intangibles. And also, you know, they don't have to be likable. Um, I think one common mistake investors make is that they give money to people they like, which um, is not necessarily a criteria. Some mm -hmm. of these people can be abrasive or they can be downright uh, uh, hostile or belligerent. And, um, but uh, these, I mean, you know, okay, it's, it's nice, of course, to work with people you like, but that's not uh, the criteria that we're looking for. So... Uh, you know, you see a lot of, you know, also, you know, a lot of like very successful cases where um, not everyone adored these visionaries of Steve Jobs. And, you know, you have like a lot of other uh, people who, uh, who build amazing businesses 
they're not necessarily terribly likable people, you know. Interesting. Uh, yeah. Very, very good point. Um, and I suppose that brings up uh, a question for me around how do you shift? Because I've seen this done very well and I've seen this done very poorly uh, in organizations where an, an, a founder tries to transition to being a CEO and it doesn't work or it does work and it does work because they're open, they're honest, they listen, they take advice from others. Um, how do you guys manage the shift between a founder who's maybe an ideas man and maybe isn't going to be in the CEO seat or has said, no, I want to be in the CEO seat, but it's going to take some work and I recognize that. How do you guys manage through that scenario? Um, we rarely come across because we invest really? in such an early stage. Very often it's still the same person. Um, so uh, this is not, I would say, the, the, the situation we often encounter. Uh, however, I think I, I guess I'll follow up the the, the scenario that works best if there were two founders or two like people leading a leading a company, um, and they need to have complementary traits. One should be more kind of analytical and scientific, and the other one should be more kind of sales oriented and business savvy. Uh, that combination tends to work well. Okay. Okay, and um, what sort of kind of what sort of at that early stage where they're not maybe transitioning into that kind of that seat? What type of training do you kind of insist they go on? What type of um, kind of adaptations do they need to make to get that kind of five um, x um, valuation? Like, what would you insist they um, sit down and do? I noticed on your board and on your team you have extensive um, list of profiles with expertise. Maybe what does that journey look like for a portfolio company as they take on an investment? Well, we, I mean, we don't obviously demand anything. We have a minority stake. We are in no position to make demand. Sure. Uh, but we, we do recommend um, uh, certain things. And we um, also, you know, we're not there to, uh, 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 you know, we don't run like a, like a summer camp for, uh, for startups. Mm -hmm. I mean, they, um, we give certain recommendations. We, help them uh, with uh, introductions and uh, uh, for both clients and partners. Uh, we help them structure their, like, their uh, product profile in a way that it's most appealing. Um, and uh, we help introduce them to people that, that make a difference in their particular industry uh, and to give them more credibility, to give them more reach and footprint. Um, but we, you know, we're not their psychologist or or a therapist, you know, to help them grow, as, to help them grow uh, as a person, you know, that's, that's how we do. Yeah, obviously, you know, they can ask us for advice and we're happy to give it, but um, I mean, we're not, uh, we're not there to, uh, I mean, we're, we're there to move the company forward to get them to round B. Um, that's, that's what we're trying to do. Okay. Got it. Makes sense. Um, I've noticed throughout the course of this conversation, you've been very humble, which is a fantastic trait to have. Um, but I dare say with your background and education and experience, you, you quite frankly are an expert. So maybe just tell us a bit about your own kind of superpower, as it were, your own value and leadership traits that you find are very important that have led you to where you are today um, through some of your experience that you've clearly been very successful at. 
I, I don't know. I would, I would struggle to answer that. I, I, don't really, <laughs> I don't really think I have any superpowers, nor do I think I'm terribly successful or humble, by the way. Oh, okay. Start <laughs> so, boasting then. I'm waiting to hear it. No, but I mean, there's nothing, there's not, <laughs> nothing to say. I mean, it's, uh, I mean, my background is a matter of public record. Anybody, you know, they look at my LinkedIn profile and uh, I don't really consider myself an expert on anything. I, I think I probably know more than the average person, but I don't think I have uh, some deep, profound expertise <laughs> in any of these fields. Um, and there are lots of people who are probably more, um, more in depth and you know smarter and better educated than I am. Um, no, I think it's just a, a combination of things. And I, you know, I'm a practical person. I look at things from a very practical perspective. And um, things that work best are the ones that provide tangible, immediate tangible benefit. Um, mm. and, uh, that doesn't mean that I, you know, uh, that I don't uh, want to, you know, uh, I, like find the next startup that's going to change the face of humanity, but I'm not trying to find one, <laughs> you know, maybe, you know, if I find it, great, but that's not what I'm, you know, that, that I really want to do. Uh, also, that's not what I think makes money. You know, it's, uh, if you're going to, uh, you have to have your objectives in a very clear way. Uh, you know, we're in the business of multiplying returns and, uh, and producing a very healthy return on, on investable capital. Um, and uh, uh, what is often confusing in this venture capital industry and technology is that you hear like it's uh, people want, wanting to do this or that and engage and using all kinds of, uh, you know, trendy terminology. Mm. Uh, and it, it's as if they're ashamed to say that they really want to make money and get rich. And, um, <laughs> you know, I... Interesting. Yeah, so uh, I think you have to kind of like own up to what you really want to do. Um, you know, uh, we recently had, like I had a, an exchange with one very promising startup and they keep insisting that they're not doing it for the money. And, uh, and I told them, I say, if you're not doing it for the money, you're not going to succeed. You know, if you're doing this to like, whatever, make the world a better place and, and their product is, is definitely not humanitarian in nature, <laughs> you know, but, right. um, you know, that then, um, you know, then you should just say, it, you know, I'm making a product that's making the world a better place and uh, it's not going to make any money. Therefore, you know, if you're, if you're looking for investment, um, you know, don't expect anything back, you know, you'll make a world a better place, but you know, don't expect to make money doing it. Um, so I think this clarity of, uh, of purpose is, uh, is very important. So that's, that's what it is. So you, you know, you, you wanted me to comment on my superpowers. So I guess it's, uh, it's practicality, practicality and clear thinking, <laughs> you know, that's it. Like, there's no question. That's the best answer I've heard to that question, because um, you've uncovered something there that's like the big elephant in the room of profit being a dirty word sometimes. And I think the marketplace is the ultimate judge, jury and executioner of your idea. And the market is there to provide feedback. You either win or you learn. And if you're there to play, you should be there to play to win. And, you know, the market's there to give you feedback along the way. And the feedback is, well, are people buying your product? Now, you can argue about profitability around market share and land grabbing and, you know, massive levels of, of running a burn rate and a deficit and all those kinds of things. 
But ultimately, the goal is to make a profit and make money. You can draw that out. Um, and that's very much the American kind of uh, way of, of doing it. And that's fine. It's about market share. But yeah, right. As you rightly said, you're there to exit and you're there to make money. And that's where the market will give you. It'll be your, your, your school, right? It's your school of, of, of learning. And that's my philosophy anyway. I think, I think you've, you've clarified something that is probably in people's minds. But ultimately, you know, if you're there to make the world a better place, that's part of the journey. You know, you should be there to do that mutually. Now, healthcare is a different thing and we can go into a philosophical de debate. But no, I, I think that's very, very clarifying. And um, thank you. Huge insight. Huge insight. Well, look, um, I want to really thank you for today's contribution. My pleasure. My beneficial. Pleasure. Um, I hope you've uh, enjoyed it as much as I certainly have. Um, I would love to do a second part two of this show into the future to see how the Baltic region develops. Uh, if you're open to that, Gene. Sure. Love to. Thank you. Wonderful. Well, look, thanks again for joining us on the show today. And I look forward to that second edition. Great. Thanks, Ross. You've been listening to the Global Tech Leaders Podcast, designed for both established and aspiring career-focused tech rock stars, as well as helping leadership figure out how to speak global in today's multicultural world. For further details, check out sf-talent.com.